I, I wasn't looking to um, fool myself into believing, hey, you know, you could do it. it. It was more a matter of like, does the math work, you know, if I do these? Because I think that these are the size projects I could capitalize. Like, how much can I earn doing this? And is that sustainable mm -hmm. for me? Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining the show. This is going to be a great show. You guys are really in for a treat on this one. Andrew Blake is a founder and managing partner of Presidio Interest here in Fort Worth, Texas. Since forming Presidio in late 2006, he has successfully developed, redeveloped, and repositioned over 180,000 square feet of urban infill commercial and mixed-use properties with a combined value in excess of $40 million. firm he works with, Presidio Interest, is a forward-thinking real estate development and investment firm, as I said, based here in Fort Worth, Texas. They specialize in using creative strategies to carry out value-added investments and new developments. So in this episode, we're going to discuss how Andrew got started in real estate development, certain hurdles he faced when developing his first property, and advice that he would give others that are looking to get into real estate development as well. As always, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and please share with your friends. There will be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you. Can't wait to get into this discussion. Uh, you've got quite an interesting experience here in Fort Worth, and I wanted to share that with everyone listening. So in my introduction before this call, I, I talked a little bit about your background, and but uh, if you would, just give us a little bit more about yourself and, and talk to us about uh, Presidio Interest. Sure. Um, well, let's see. Uh, kind of a, a broad question, but I'll, I'll try to keep it close to the, the company there. Um, I, uh, I have uh, always wanted to get into development. I'm somebody who's always been fascinated with architecture and cities and on the people who, uh, who live in them and wanted to uh, find a way to make a good living while making a difference in the world around me. And uh, the way I chose to do that was through, uh, you know, impacting the built environment and uh, spaces where people uh, spend their days working or visit. And, uh, and I guess the spaces in between those. So uh, it's a, a lot of fun. Right. And so what was your experience growing up? Was it, you said you, you always wanted to get into development uh, from an early age? Is that something that you yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I think that my answer is similar to a whole lot of people in development in that growing up, uh, if you asked me when I was 14 what career I thought I'd want to have as an adult, I'd probably answer architecture. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I think I was just somehow, you know, through a series of kind of a, pieces of advice from adults who were architects, who were friends of my parents, uh, 
seemed to somehow kind of discourage me from that path. Uh, I'm not sure if that was good advice or not, but um, it, it caused me to really decide to not focus on a vocational academic program and rather choose one that was more uh, kind of liberal arts in nature. Uh, therefore, you know, preserve the flexibility to figure out after college, you know, what the right path was. And, uh, but about halfway through college, I really had figured out that I was extremely interested in real estate development and uh, sought out and got an internship with uh, Trammell Crow Company in Nashville uh, in order to you know start to get some experience. This was not in a development role, of course, uh, but rather just uh, you know working for some uh, some really sharp guys who were uh, brokers there. Wow. And uh, what were your parents? What, what did they do for for a living? Uh, my father's an artist. Okay. And, uh, and my mom uh, is is really kind of an investor, I guess you'd say. Okay, is that where you'd say you got some of that urge to follow follow development, or? Uh, so I'll say this: my mother is very civic minded, um, okay. so she's always served in a lot of uh, uh, kind of role, like philanthropic roles, serving you know on boards of local organizations and on committees, and so uh, service has always been a big part of her life. Uh, although she, I've never heard her say it that way. Um, <laughs> and again, my father's an artist and, uh, th they're both big travelers. And I suppose that, you know, you kind of mix all this up and it, and it, you know, rubbed off on me in various ways. And one was that, uh, I, I really, you know, want to make an impact on, on cities, but in particular, the one where I live, uh, Fort Worth. And, and I think that there's a, a lot of overlap between, you know, um, that agenda, which is really, you know, it's sort of a double bottom line there, I suppose, you know, how to, you know, how to create wealth for, for all the people who are involved in our projects. Mm -hmm. Um, but also to, to do so by, by first not, you know, damaging the world around us, like environmentally or in, and physically, socially, all these things, but even it, you know, improving it. And I think that there's so much opportunity, particularly in a city like Fort Worth, um, that there's plenty of room for project selection where those you know, multiple agendas can be achieved. Um, but we're, we're not in the nonprofit business here uh, of going and building things or buying assets and, and doing this just uh, out of the goodness of our hearts. Um, so it's really a matter of achieving both, you know, the good for the people who are specifically involved in our projects, but also um, everybody around it. Right. So that's, that's where your values came from. It sounds like your, your parents had a bit in, big impact on that. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I have wonderful parents. So Trammell Crow, you, you were there for how long? Uh, well, let's see. So I worked for him in Nashville for about a year, my senior year in college. And then uh, they were just opening a tenant rep division in Dallas in 1997 when I was getting out of college. Um, mm -hmm. for, for some reason, they had delayed the creation of that um, kind of role in Dallas in particular, which is the, the company's hometown. And uh, I was just lucky that the company was for the first time in something like 12 years, they were beginning to hire people straight out of college. So my friend and I were the, I think that I'm just told the first two people hired straight out of undergrad in that office in something like 10 or 12 years. <laughs> um, because there, you know, had been a massive slowdown from the mid eighties through the, through the, even the mid nineties and things were just warming up at that point enough. There was a, you know, uh, they really didn't need, I think, to hire people who were green and clueless like we were. <laughs> and what was that role? Um, so again, it was a, uh, 
it was a brokerage division um, that was specialized in tenant representation and investment sales. Um, they differentiated uh, from the other department, which was the, the large existing department, which was uh, project leasing, which was downstairs. Um, so that way, our group was, um, was tasked with uh, representing tenants, whereas the group downstairs was representing landlords, and therefore it would, it would uh, kind of prevent a conflict of interest for either of those two parties. Right. So this probably gets into my next question. How did you get started in development? Was it, and this kind of segues into a little bit more about Presidio interest. Um, what, what drove you to kind of break out of that, that corporate structure? Well, um, so I was always very eager to find a way to get into development. Um, I wanted to get, um, whether it, well, initially I wanted to find somebody to employ me, um, <laughs> where I could work in any kind of a role where I could be involved in it, whether it was, you know, leasing or asset management or, you know, I wasn't qualified to do construction management, um, uh, financial analysis, anything. And I just could not find anyone to hire me to do that. Uh, and at the time in the late nineties and early two thousands, there was relatively little development occurring. Um, now I'm also, I'm not talking about multifamily here. This is all, uh, commercial, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so office and industrial primarily. And there was just very, there were very few people who were really, you know, engaged on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, in doing that. And Trammell Crow Company, which had completely repositioned itself following, uh, their challenging times in the mid eighties, um, they had really repositioned themselves to become a service company. So they had emphasized leasing and management services and almost entirely done away with uh, development at that point. Uh, and so you know, I, I, I realized this a little bit late um, and was still kind of begging to, to do work for a few people who were, who were engaged in development there and was out, you know, trying to find development deals and, and did my best for, again, a kind of green clueless guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I, was, I was, back to your question, so I was there for a year in Nashville and about, uh, I think about two years, maybe two and a half years uh, following college. And the first half of that was in Dallas and the second half was in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. We opened a Fort Worth office and I was moved along with one other person to Fort Worth and they hired a team here uh, in that office. Gotcha. And after Tremel Crow, is that when you kind of broke out on your own or, or were there? Well, actually, uh, so I had a, a, a bit of a, a detour there. So in 1999, um, the news was filled with people who were my age at the time, about 24, who were, you know, raising a lot of money, starting technology companies it was during the dot-com boom. And so, mm -hmm. Uh, this was actually a source of uh, clientele for me um, as a young tenor rep broker. So I had at least two friends of mine who raised a decent amount of money and who were uh, who needed office space for their startups. And one of them, I was uh, introduced to his boss um, at the investment firm where they were, and uh, spent a lot of time in the car with him as a hedge, hedge fund manager who was engaging in some venture capital work too. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
and got to learn a lot about kind of where they were going with this startup. And I think he could tell that I was growing disillusioned with my, uh, with the kind of pace of my career advancement. I was just, I was impatient. I was really ready to learn more. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, I wound up taking a job with those guys as the third employee at, uh, was a company that became called Handango. And it was a, uh, a technology company that, that had an, what today we call an app store, um, mm-hmm. downloadable software for mobile devices. And I was there for about two years. Um, and that was again, just opportunity to learn. It was exciting. You know, there was kind of a moonshot for all of us there. You know, if everything went great, we would have made a lot of money, but, uh, it was a great experience. And, oh yeah, definitely you know, at that age. So yeah, following Handango, um, you know, the company had 80 people. It was, you know, past the point of a bunch of young generalist entrepreneurs like me who were just trying to, you know, scramble and figure things out. We now had people who were seasoned, you know, been there, done that people, Mm -hmm. you know, in their thirties. And, uh, and so it was kind of time to move on, uh, the financial opportunity was greatly reduced because the NASDAQ had, had peaked and started declining following March of 2000. And, uh, so I, you know, realized I was not in love with, uh, technology like I was with real estate. And so started looking for jobs in Texas and in California, um, you know, in back in real estate business. And of course I was, I was trying to find a job in development and, uh, this was right when the tech crash was beginning. And so, uh, while I had already decided to kind of, to focus on California, um, because I figured I was 26 and if I was going to just be irresponsible and move someplace random, uh, this would be the last time for probably a while that I could do yeah. it. What a better and, place, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, now or now or never. And, and also I was looking for a place realistically, the, the thought, the story in my head went something like this. Um, I'd like to work in a place that is a like really mature kind of urban market. And I'd love to find a job with a, in a, a developer there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, when I say developer, I, I don't necessarily mean they need to be doing ground up, but somebody who's, who's, you know, either redeveloping or developing buildings. Right. I felt like I could learn more in a more challenging environment like that, a more challenging, you know, entitlement environment and kind of tight sure. urban market. Uh, and, and also, you know, there's a little sense of adventure there. Um, I love San Francisco and that was kind of my target. I wound up hearing from most of the people who I was pursuing jobs with. They said, look, we're really not going to take you seriously until you're here. So I had to just kind of, you know, hold my nose and, and move. Uh, <laughs> and, and I did. Uh, and I, uh, found, uh, a couple of people who were just very generous to, uh, I'd say sort of take pity on me and, and give me a job. <laughs> Um, because I was, you know, I had what, two and a half years of, of basically leasing experience and, uh, and then sort of unrelated startup experience. And I was looking to go into a market that was in free fall where Mm -hmm. I was totally disconnected to the people and the geography, having not grown up there and not having gone to college there. Yeah, that's Uh, big. It, 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 you know, I'd say it's just really common, right? You have, you have a little bit of a built-in kind of head start if you know the lay of the land and you have mm-hmm. relationships with people. And so I, that was, it was just something that I didn't have, but like, even if I'd been from there, there still weren't jobs available. Um, and so one guy, uh, his name is Christopher Petrus, uh, who, um, at the time was at, uh, Divco West, an opportunity fund. Um, he very kindly, like I said, sort of took pity on me and, and hired me as a, uh, you know, contract 
employee uh, to help with asset management. And uh, he did not have to do that. He, uh, I mean, he, he, he probably needed a little help, you know, in offloading some stuff, but he did not have to do that. He probably could have found somebody more seasoned than me and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyhow. So, uh, then he wound up leaving that company and joining a different one, an office REIT. Uh, and, uh, after a period of time, I wound up going there to work for him at the other one. Um, through this time, I had so much downtime in the Bay Area looking yeah. for jobs. Um, I had, I don't remember how many months it was. Was it four or five months maybe? Because uh, September 2001 occurred during the time, right when I got there. Mm. Nobody was hiring post 9-11. I mean, everybody, not only was the market in free fall before that, but everybody just totally went into paralysis following that. froze up, yeah. 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 Uh, understandably. And so, uh, it was, it was a tough time. So I, I was, you know, having lunch or breakfast or coffee with somebody every single day who <laughs> was a real estate investor developer. And, and I just became like, uh, uh, I felt like a professional interviewer. I mean, <laughs> I, or, these weren't for jobs. These were just, you know, solicitation for expertise and trying you know, to understand and I, I, to I, I, yeah. it was like, I was, I was desperate to find something, but it, I also, I loved that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I learned a lot about how people uh, decided to set their companies up and how they were structured and the kinds of people that they wanted in each roles. And one theme that I kind of took away from it was that um, most of these firms were fairly lean. Like even if they're doing big capital intensive projects, they didn't have a big headcount on the development team. Uh, excuse me, just in the whole company, period. Right. Um, you know, they'd be, you know, between two and four partners you know, and then they'd have beyond that, they'd have specialists. There was, you know, an accountant and probably a financial analyst and maybe somebody who was more of a kind of a, you know, development manager or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these, these, the people who were younger and more junior on the, on the team were specialists. They were not generalists. And so mm-hmm. it occurred to me that at that time, in addition to being geographically disconnected from the place, uh, I basically was a young generalist and, um, I was not an expert in anything to be fair. And that in reality, like even if a job had been available, I'm not sure that most of them would have hired me because I just wasn't great at something yet. And it was real hard. Um, and, uh, and so, and I realized also that, you know, in order to be where those guys were, who were the principals, um, I needed, uh, to fill in some gaps in, in my, in my, my skill set, because the people who were the partners weren't just good at one thing. They had probably two or three of these key disciplines that they were very good at, you know, say it's sort of construction and finance or law and leasing or something. And, and I realized that my gaping hole was finance, um, is that I really knew nothing about real estate finance. And ultimately I led to my applying to business school and returning to school. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And that's, part of why, like you said, it was tough to find a job is they do run these development groups are so lean. Um, unless you really know someone, it's, it's real tough to get involved in something that's already established, like you were saying. Yeah. And, and honestly, like I didn't expect that somebody would, you know, like if they'd been a family friend that, that doesn't guarantee employment. Right. Um, mm-hmm. so that basically helps with an introduction, I think. 
Um, but uh, either way, yeah, that that didn't work for me uh, during that period of time. And and ultimately, again, when I was what 28, I went back to business school um, to address the fact that I had these kind of big holes, mostly in in finance, uh, in my background. And and, and frankly, it wound up being a, uh, an amazing decision. I wound up learning far more than just finance. Uh, so I got more than I was I bargained for, and it was it was a great experience. Perfect. So you went back went back to school. Then what? What uh, you, you got additional business degree? Um, yeah, my undergrad degree was was in uh, human and organizational development. So okay. it's sort of say kind of like management, but uh, Vanderbilt does not have an undergraduate business degree, yeah. uh, and so that was. Uh, whatever it was kind of social sciences kind of degree is fascinating, but, um, totally lacking in finance. So that was the main reason to go back and as an MBA, uh, most of the classes I took were in real estate finance. Um, uh, I think I, I missed one class that would have given me the formal specialization in it, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, it's okay. Awesome experience. Great people, great lifelong friends, love the faculty. I would highly recommend the comes MBA program at UT to anybody who's oh. interested. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, and uh, so then coming out, I uh, I wound up finding a job in Austin with an opportunity fund uh, called Falcon Southwest, uh, run by very smart people. Um, they uh, invested in both multifamily and uh, office. And my job was as a an asset manager. I mean, it was, it was kind of a portfolio manager, but the title was asset manager of all the uh, all the office buildings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was very eager to do this because it was it was something I hadn't done before. Uh, so like there was a lot of uh, you know learning upside for me, and uh, and and consequently a whole lot of scrambling to try to kind of uh, to to fill a role that my boss used to serve in. Um, and he was I, probably very good at it. And I was, you know, trying to kind of catch up as fast as I could. And mm-hmm. it, it was not a, a great fit for me. And, uh, but I, I learned a ton. I was there for less than a year, but, um, uh, I just, I probably wasn't very good at, you know, fitting into his system. And, uh, ultimately he, he canned me, um, which he was right to do. I was just not a good fit for the job. But again, I was so, I was so obsessed with kind of absorbing what I could while I was there. Um, and, and kind of, it was almost like practice. Right. Um, right. uh, so it was real value to me. So I was, I was not eager to just say, Hey, this is not working for me. I'm out of here. I was working <laughs> about 85 hour weeks, um, trying to kind of outwork the challenges I was having with balancing, uh, the duties there. There was a ton of reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of, uh, you know, developing reports for our investors, um, on top of, uh, running cash flow, So kind of like financial analysis, um, which I'd gotten pretty decent at in business school, but I was still kind of slow at it cause I hadn't, I hadn't practiced it for too long. Um, and then I was also managing the, uh, leasing and property management teams on each of those assets. And, uh, uh, so it was kind of trying to balance speed with precision and I just, uh, you know, I wasn't as good at it as uh, I think he probably was before. So anyhow, yeah. that, uh, I was probably what, 30 years old at that point, And my boss just fired me. And, uh, I, you know, I felt pretty self-conscious about that, even though in hindsight, 
it was kind of a no brainer. It was a, the wrong job for me. Right. Uh, and so I realized at that point, after going back and talking to a few more people who were in development investment roles, I, that I'm not sure someone's going to give me a job uh, doing what I really want to do. And, you know, I'm 30 years old. Uh, I, I think I've kind of, I know enough to, to figure this out, provided I, I kind of start small enough, kind of bootstrap it and build it from there. So that was what led to my decision to, to start doing this on my own. Gotcha. So you moved from Austin up, up to Fort Worth. And was that just because this is where you were familiar or you, you saw opportunities here? Or? Yeah, both of those really. Um, and I, it wasn't automatic. Um, I mean, I've always loved Fort Worth and, and I was always good about coming back and, you know, keeping friendships, you know, intact here. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, I, I pulled out, uh, you know, I, I, frankly, I gave myself two weeks to run feasibility on a bunch of ideas because I was having to make a decision whether I try to find a job again or if I would go do this on my own, but I didn't want to just, uh, you know, mess around for six months and, have nothing happen. Um, so I had to figure out whether, you know, whether I could make it work to, to do it on my own. And so I, uh, I had a long list of different kind of investment themes and ideas I had, and I just had to kind of put pen to paper and, and do the math on each one of those to say like, how much, you know, uh, how much would I make on each of these and how quickly can I do them? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was just, you know, really kind of blunt, you know, kind of really blunt and, and, uh, Sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I, I wasn't looking to um, fool myself into believing, hey, you know, you can do it. it. It was more a matter of like, does the math work, you know, if I do these? Because I think that these are the size projects I could capitalize. Like, how much can I earn doing this? And is that sustainable mm-hmm. for me? Uh, and so I determined um, that, yeah, I thought it was. Um, and I mean, I was single at the time, so I could live pretty lean. Uh, and, uh, and I remember thinking that, uh, you know, God, I don't know, probably had like 15 or 20 different ideas to explore and they were split between Austin and Fort Worth and just one by one, all the ideas in Austin were getting crossed off the list mm-hmm. and the ones in Fort Worth, you know, I had probably four or five there that seemed to really have legs. And so I started spending more and more time in Fort Worth and then ultimately, uh, you know, got an apartment there and allowed my lease to expire in Austin and, Next thing I knew, I was permanently living in Fort Worth. Uh, but it was kind of like a transition from one to the other. Uh, and, and for years, I, I would still really kind of look at deals in Austin. And I still do from time to time. But it's, I think it's kind of a time right now where as a kind of value investor kind of mindset, it's a really hard place to find something oh, that has a strong relative value. Definitely. So this kind of transitions into my next point is your first investment your first project, what did that look like? And what, what hurdles did you run into? What, what unexpected events happened on, on the road to this first uh, project? Sure. Um, the actual first one is probably not as interesting as the one that followed right next to it. Sure. Um, the first one we bought is, uh, was a warehouse, a 1972 vintage tilt wall warehouse uh, on Shamrock Avenue. Um, so kind of near West side industrial district of Fort Worth, kind of behind Mm -hmm. the Audubon, uh, car dealerships backing up to the Trinity trails, which I liked. 
Um, and uh, we bought it at, for kind of very reasonable number price per pound. My thesis was, hey, this whole Trinity River Vision thing is going to displace a whole lot of tenants nearby. They're going to be buying out a lot of these users. It's going to throw a whole bunch of users up in the air who are going to be looking for new places to go. So there's basically a supply shock that's coming. And, uh, you know, 10% or 15% of the supply in the neighborhood is about to be torn down. Um, and, you know, there's a pretty good chance that some of those people will be good fits for our building. And sure enough, that was right. Um, it, it took a little while, but international paper took about half the building. Um, so that, that proved to be correct. Um, and, uh, but also this was designed as a long-term hold. Um, we've got an office user for the other side. There's a, a technology company and time went on. Now we have where international paper used to be. We have uh, a tenant that I think is a way better kind of long-term tenant. And that is a, a gym called Endura lab, which is a, a great, awesome business. Um, and uh and then the other side is still an office space uh now that that happened to be first um you know not a beautiful building so we kind of improved it to make it i think as attractive as it can be but it is still a tilt wall 1970s building we just you know added a whole lot of glass and and landscaping and and made it uh you know i'd say kind of a value plus building Mm -hmm. Um, but the key thing is there also i think that there's still more upside there because the connectivity to the trail is something that is uh is hard to find and and for some kinds of users like the gym right that's really really valuable um so the other one right around that time i had met um a fellow named jim harris who um is about 30 years older than me is a very experienced successful residential land developer um and a co-owner in a um higher end single family development company or home builder uh, called Village Homes here in Fort Worth. And I knew him through Urban Land Institute involvement. I just kind of bumped into him and talked to him a few times. I knew he was very smart, loved talking to him. And uh, and he was one of a couple people in town where I thought, like, if I was going to go, you know, look for a job, he's somebody who I would be interested in. in. He's a guy I'd love to work for. Mm-hmm. Well, just, you know, through serendipity, um, somebody kind of uh, – we ran into each other. We started talking and I found out that he had some stuff that, that he owned that he thought was kind of a distraction for his team and said, would you, you know, kind of come on and, and work, you know, for like, it wasn't like a full employment thing. Like this is a a full-time deal, but would you, you know, get paid some sort of fees and take this over? And, you know, I'd like to put some more money into commercial investments. Um, uh, we have a, an empty office in our building we've got, you know, an accountant, which you can use, you know, kind of cafeteria style. Um, so why don't you move in here and, uh, we'll form a company together for these deals we do together. And I said, awesome. Uh, so <laughs> I was too good to be true, right? I really liked a lot, you know, said, I want to invest in your deals and, and, and it was great. And, um, and so one of the first things that hit, um, was that his partners in that home building company had bought a piece of land on Camp Bowie just west of the Amon Carter Art Museum. Um, so for anybody who knows where that is, this is uh, really prime real estate um, where it is extremely hard to buy something and extremely hard to build things. Well, they, through a series of exercises, determined that they couldn't build as high as they wanted. They wanted to do residential there, and it really had to be office. Well, that's not what they do. And so Jim said, look, I'm afraid that my home building partners are at risk of like severe distraction here by trying to figure out how to build an office building on this. Is, 
is this something you'd have an interest in doing? And I said, hell yes, I would love to. <laughs> um, and uh, that led to uh, a fee development arrangement. So I, I did not negotiate in any kind of ownership for myself. Uh, there was already, you know, there were a lot of partners. And I thought from a um, kind of fiduciary standpoint, is it was kind of better, cleaner if I just got paid as a fee developer. Um, but I was responsible for taking it from, um, they, they'd already kind of completed the conceptual design, so they knew what they wanted it to look like, and they knew generally how big it could be. Um, already had an architect on board, um, so I kind of took it from there and, you know, refined the feasibility so that we could make the numbers work, uh, you know, hired the leasing team, the property management team, um, construction, uh, contract, uh, manage the development. And, uh, my job was to take the leasing up to 90% least, uh, and then to hand it back over to the owners to handle hmm. asset management. And, uh, so that building is uh, 3707 Camp Bowie. And, um, I'll say, so and this is actually, it was a great experience, but it's also the reason I don't focus on ground up development as much as I do on redevelopment. And the reason is that I still think going back in time, there was about a 20% probability that we pulled that off and built it. Um, and it really came down to that, that we, we had to achieve, uh, you know, substantial pre-leasings. We had to find two office tenants who were willing to wait about two years, pay top of market rents, um, and not want the same space in the building. Um, <laughs> and uh, we just got extremely lucky that at that moment you know, two of them showed up. One was Plains Capital Bank and the other was Williams True Real Estate Services. Um, and uh, Williams True actually really wanted to build their own building and own one. So we wound up negotiating uh, for them to buy a 50% undivided interest in the building. So it became an open book negotiation with them because they were, you know, looking at it as investors and also mm -hmm. negotiating their lease. So, you know, when that happens, you know, they understand that the building doesn't happen without them. Uh, right. so you wind up, you know, you wind up kind of negotiating a, a lease rate that is, you know, just enough to make the building pencil, but not more. Um, so it's just, it winds up becoming a financially very efficient project. And, uh, and, uh, those six owners, uh, of those, uh, of those two companies, the home builders and the real estate company are, are still, I think are still the owners of the building. And I think, I think the result is that we collectively built a really great uh, kind of boutique class A office building that will have increasing value for a long time because it's extremely hard to build office space there. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I'm proud of the design. The guys at Village Homes were very, uh, which is actually split into two companies now, V Fine Homes and Village, but they both care a whole lot about how things look and they care about, you know, the neighborhood. And um, so... I'm proud of what we did there. We, we saved a bunch of really old live oak trees that looked like it was going to be tough at first and planted about 20 more trees. So, you know, it was just, uh, I'm proud of the outcome there. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful building. I mean, it's, it's definitely uh, unique. It's not, it's not like every other office building, which is, yeah, they, they wanted a kind of classical design. They didn't want something, you know, uh, given the fact that the neighborhoods were built mostly in the twenties around there, I think they wanted something that, that fit with that. Yeah, that makes sense. So that that was a successful build for you, essentially ground up. But what type of properties do you typically deal with on a on a more of a day to day now? And, and what does that ideal project look like for you guys? 
Sure. Well, again, so our, our main focus is on repositioning existing assets. And I'd say we, we do selective ground up. We do, I think just last year, we went into kind of a very detailed discussions with a company about doing a ground up office building for them. Um, so we still do look for those and uh, I'm sure we will do more in the future. Um, but uh, for the most part, what we look for are assets that are uh, primarily commercial, um, um, that uh, where we can make changes to them, usually physical changes, um, but also more than just that, uh, to to fix them, uh, to reposition them, um, to create a great environment for the people who spend their days in them, um, and to make them really productive assets and to grow the value for everybody involved and, and those people around it. Um, so frequently the uses that are in these, uh, are, uh, office and retail. Um, usually we're not doing, you know, the kinds of retail tenants who you find in like strip malls. These are frequently, uh, food and beverage retailers. So mostly restaurants, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, coffee shops, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, it really depends on the building. Um, so we're more the kind of developer who, who finds a building where we think there's potential and then we kind of tailor, you know, what we focus on, uh, you know, the kinds of tenants to that location in the building. We don't, uh, say, Hey, we only work with, you know, pharmacies and we're going to only find, you know, go out and look at buildings that work for pharmacies. So mm -hmm. there are two kinds of approaches. There are some developers who, who have like a very narrow focus on the kinds of users they work with, and they go looking for sites for that. We're the other way around. We look for, uh, for buildings that have certain characteristics um, and locations that have certain characteristics, and then kind of tailor the recruiting strategy to that. Gotcha. So what are those building characteristics that you typically – look for like you asked me certain... to give away my secret sauce here <laughs> no 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 Kidding. hey uh, just uh just broad broad yeah, characteristics um <laughs> uh so we have a few investment themes uh really at any given time that we focus on and i'll say one common denominator across many of those is uh capitalizing on what people refer to a lot of times as the sort of back to the city movement um mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is, I, I think we are still in early innings of, uh, the migration of, uh, I say migration of people back to the city, but we're really not talking so much about people who currently live in the perimeter who are moving back in, although there is a lot of that, but rather people choosing to live and work in urban connected places, sure. uh, instead of places that are greenfield edge of the city or outside the city locations. Um, and there are a ton of people much smarter than me who have studied this and write about it. And, uh, uh, and so, you know, on one hand, I think, so it is strategically smart to, to understand that movement and to focus on what those people in their places, uh, you know, their, their residential places and the commercial places where they work and the places where they want to, you know, visit, uh, you know, to eat or spend money or whatever. Um, and so by kind of understanding those tastes and, uh, and preferences, uh, that helps kind of inform sort of what to focus on. Um, uh, and the other part is that I think there, there's kind of an ethical piece of this too. And that I think it's just better for the city economically, for its health to have, you know, robust, walkable, active, vibrant central city districts, 
Um, and, uh, and also, you know, think about it, it just, you know, the more people you have living and working in a compact place, the fewer car miles driven, the less pollution and carbon in the air, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it all, uh, kind of is, is positive. Um, and, uh, but of course, if the underpinning, uh, theme of people wanting to move back in was not there, we would be very, uh, careful and reluctant about putting money in, in, a kind of declining place, uh, which they're not. And Fort Worth is lucky in that it has so much uh, kind of remaining urban fabric to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, its central city is nowhere near full. And, and, you know, the local example here, when I say central city, I'm talking about really the parts of the city that were mostly uh, built before World War II. Yeah, downtown uh, adjacent. Type. And, but even further out, I mean, if, if you were to you know, pull up a map of the city of Fort Worth um, from 1945, or excuse me, really 1942, it wouldn't have changed from 42 to 45, uh, you would see you know, that it extended pretty far south quickly. Actually, even as early as the 20s, it went, it went really far south. Um, mm-hmm. And it went a little bit west. But you could also just look at the current map and you could see where the street grid stops and the serpentine streets begin. Mm-hmm. is typically a pretty reliable line where the pre-war and post-war development occurred. And it's just that in, it, there's nothing wrong with the post-war, you know, locations. It's just that the, the building stock is often not as interesting to work with. You know, the materials they used are less uh, interesting to kind of embrace and, and rework and, you know, expose brick walls and those kind of things. Um, the, they typically are lower density, which also doesn't work as well for uh, a lot of commercial success. You know, these commercial businesses with the, you know, most of the retail ones, they want high density of customers living as close as possible. Um, they want density. They don't want, you know, sparse, you know, 10 acre lots all over the mm-hmm. place, um, for, you know, for the numbers to work for their, their, uh, businesses. So we, you know, for a number of reasons, focus on these kind of older parts of town. Uh, we have one right now, that is just east of TCU and actually more specifically just east of Pascal high school. Mm-hmm. And that's as far as we've gone out of downtown so far. Um, it's probably three miles, maybe three and a half miles from downtown is my guess. Um, and right across eighth Avenue from it is Ryan place, which is a just you know phenomenal, gorgeous, historic neighborhood. Right. Um, uh, so that tells you like how far the city, you know, it's, it's, it's development went, went, uh, you know, at least that far, probably further actually, you know, before World War II. So you've got some cool old urban fabric, um, all around TCU, um, and, and point South there and some kind of neat little opportunities beyond what we have, you know, for, I think, you know, kind of bringing back, you know, old pre-war commercial buildings, you know, that better connect to these denser neighborhoods. And, uh, there's just a, a lot to do for people, not just us. Awesome. Yeah. I've, you know, your developments, uh, they definitely have a, a common theme of providing better spaces than obviously what was there before, but the spaces make sense. The, you know, they fit the surroundings, and but yet they bring life to that area where uh, before there was an abandoned warehouse or, or an abandoned office. It's pretty inspiring to see some of those those projects come, come to well, life. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And so building on that, to say somebody would was interested in real estate development like yourself, you know, growing up wanting to learn as much as you could, you know, you got coffee and 
and took these guys out to lunch in San Francisco and you just kept hounding for information mm-hmm. that might that might be alluding to this this next question but what what advice would you give to somebody that's interested in pursuing a uh, a career in, in real estate development um a whole lot and um i i think my first answer to this question will um will lead to better advice than i could personally give and that is to you know target and find out who the smartest uh experienced people are within uh, their, you know, probable areas of, of interest and to go solicit, you know, very politely solicit <laughs> advice from them and respectfully because, you know, these people get hit up a lot. And so you're going to be extremely polite and gracious about it. Um, and, uh, and to, to go, don't ask for a job or, or, or do, Shannon, that's up to you. Um, you know, but, uh, to, to, to get, you know, their kind of download. Because I, I think that everybody's kind of got their sort of greatest hits of ideas, right? And right. sort of here, here's what matters most to me. One guy told me, for example, um, I think this is Jeff Swope, actually, uh, with Champion Partners. Um, it's funny how some of these stick in your head over the years. Um, <laughs> I think his one thing that I took away from that one was, you know, really seek to understand um, different people's agendas. You know, whether it's the property owner, you know, from whom you want to buy that site. It's the right. tenant. You know, try to really understand what matters most to them and understand kind of how they're making their decisions. Um, the lender, the investors, et cetera. So I think that was wonderful advice. Um, and it could, could be the employer. You know, what really matters to them? You know, so try to really understand it because ultimately you're trying to see if your product fits with, that is, you, you, you know, and your skills, does that fit with what matters most to this person? Um, and if not, you know, what's the gap and what do you need to fill in? Um, but more kind of generically, what, what I find myself usually saying is, you know, th- th- there are a handful of key disciplines within the industry. And uh, I received this advice from, uh, I'll name drop again here, uh, <laughs> from uh, Alex Palmer, um, who is my friend's uh, father, who's a very experienced developer and a very good developer in Nashville. Um, he said, you know, I encourage you to go get experience in one of these three kind of uh, paths you know, and, you know, get good at that and then, you know, see if you can land a spot with a developer. And uh, he told me about, you know, leasing slash brokerage, you know, I kind of put those two together, basically transactions, mm-hmm. you know, uh, property management, uh, or finance. And, um, I would say actually in hindsight, property management would probably not be the best path usually just because it's very <laughs> unusual that that leads to it. Um, um, so I would kind of modify that and I'd say, depending on how early it is for somebody, I mean, construction is one, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. design is another. Um, right. so whether, whether that's, you know, your, your wheelhouse engineering or right. architecture, um, legal law, um, is one finance. Um, usually I'd say most people probably get jobs working on the lending side, you know, through like a credit program or it could be investment banking where there's some sort of training infrastructure where people learn how, uh, the, uh, capital markets work and how that, uh, lenders and equity investors, how they assess and make decisions. Um, and, uh, and then as I said, leasing, and, and the thing about leasing is that, uh, just because this is the path I took on the tenant representation side, you really learn about how tenants make decisions, which is a big, big fundamental component of 
understanding demand for real estate. Definitely. Uh, it's not the only way. I think you know, on the other side, if you're representing the landlord, um, you understand how the how the owners make decisions and you know, sort of secondarily and indirectly, you learn how the tenants make decisions. But in reality, it's impossible for anybody to have a, you know, enough time in each of these to become mm-hmm. an expert in every one. There's just not enough lifetime to right. become, you know, an architect, you know, and a construction master and a leasing expert and a finance expert. Forget it. No. You know, so there's a point where somebody has to say, I know enough to be a good decision maker and I can build a team uh, either of partners or uh, people who are contracted to help me or employees um, where I can build my team. Uh, so that we have enough expertise to execute on a strategy and be successful. Um, no, that that answers the question of like how somebody would start their own and and do it that way. Um, once you get into really small scale stuff, it doesn't make sense to have a huge team, right? So you're really kind of like you know just the 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 financial expertise. If you're talking about a really micro investment, may come from your your loan officer at the bank. You know, it may be just, you know, leaning on them for a lot of information and and having them help, you know, really check the numbers and make sure that they're, you know, helping with that. Uh, and your construction expertise is probably coming from, you know, a combination of the architect and the contractor, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it has to be right sized for this, you know, for the size of the project or otherwise it's, you can't have, you know, a team that, that's too large for, for mm-hmm. the circumstances. Mm-hmm. So I guess this this also curtails into uh, what what's made you successful here in, in development. Uh, you've got several projects under your belt now. You talked about advice you'd give, so I imagine some of this kind of comes back to what's made you successful. But uh, uh, what are your thoughts on on one central point? I guess uh, that would make you. Uh, more successful or or has made you more successful? I'd say anybody who is successful has avoided failure, you know, so they haven't taken stupid risks. Anybody who's successful, um, you know, is careful and and probably, you know, knowledgeable. They're not just getting lucky. So that those sort of are automatic and expected. Um, I'm not unique in in this sense, but uh, I think that I'm probably more obsessed with the topic of, um, you know, building redevelopment of design and uh, urban planning and uh, kind of urban economics and public policy that affects these. I mean, I I really enjoy reading about any one of those topics I just mentioned um, or anything even close to those. Uh, I love learning about them um, and. Again, I'm not unique in that sense. There are a lot of people who are kind of junkies for their topic, but I mm-hmm. just, I love it. So I, I indulge <laughs> in it. I have to like force myself to stop reading um, articles and, uh, you know, books on these things. Um, uh, one place where I have found to be extremely valuable in this sort of thing is, uh, is the Urban Land Institute. It is just mm-hmm. loaded with smart people, the smartest um who are willing to share and uh, help one another for the most part um, and also has really deep resources to, to learn more. And so that's helped me kind of indulge my, my 
appetite for <laughs> for learning more. And it, it's probably helped keep me out of trouble in some cases and, and made me feel, I'd say, more, more confident and probably, uh, you know, make fewer errors along the way just because I've been able to rely on, you know, what I've learned in some of their classes or heard in sure. my discussions from others. Sure. Yeah. You aren't the only one that is, uh, attributed ULI to, to at least some part of their success. And that's, that's good to hear. And, uh, pretty much everybody I've talked to has mentioned lifelong learning or continuous learning as keys to success. And, uh, I got a, I got another book that I I'll send your way, but, uh, a buddy of mine wrote uh, Birth of a Building. Uh, oh, great. And I'll, I'll pass that along. It's uh, It's been pretty interesting so far. So I awesome. think you'd enjoy. No, I love it. Yeah, there's thankfully there's a never-ending uh, uh, pipeline of content. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the main challenge, I think, is just uh, is having a good filter there uh, to mm-hmm. make sure that you don't blow a whole lot of time, you know, on, on, on books that aren't, uh, you know, the – like really on point and the best use of your time. Sure. Well, I, speaking of time, uh, we're kind of running out. So I wanted to appreciate or wanted to thank you actually for, for all your time you spent here. I mean, I, I enjoyed, I love hearing your story. It, it gives others uh, kind of some perspective and maybe some, maybe a little bit of courage to uh, try, try this on their own. And, and I think, what could come from that is better spaces for everyone if done correctly. So, so I appreciate your time and giving us your story. My pleasure. Thank you. I really appreciate your inviting me to do this and uh, I look forward to, uh, to listening to more of your <laughs> podcast in the future. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Matt. Have a good day, man. You too. All right. Bye.